Will you please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews 12. You'll need a Bible to look at the passage we're going to consider. So these brothers have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention and they'll get one of those Bibles to you, marked for you at Hebrews chapter 12. And that Bible is our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's word. So please keep that. Hebrews 12. There's a passage elsewhere in the Bible that I want to start with to lead us into what we'll be looking at in Hebrews chapter 12. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the Bible says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. So ask yourself, has anybody ever asked me that? To give a reason for the hope that I have? You see, it's an assumption in the Bible that some will ask what motivates us, why we're different. But that question will only be asked of us if we've been transformed by Jesus Christ. If the people who know us aren't curious about us, then perhaps it's because we're not showing anything different in our attitudes and in our words and in our actions. If you handle financial blessing the same way as the world, buying toys because you can afford them, why would anyone ask you about what makes you different? Or consider family relationships. Where does Jesus fit into our marriages and our parenting strategies? If we talk about our spouses negatively or just don't talk about them at all, we're showing the same low view of God's institution as the world has. If when the going gets tough in our marriages, we opt out, whether opting out emotionally or physically or both, we're doing nothing different than the world does all the time. If our parenting priorities are like those of the world, why should anyone see a difference and then ask about it? For instance, the world treats children like a valuable pet. You get one or two or three or whatever, because of what it, he, she will do for you. So in the world's view, I want a baby is not much different than I want a puppy. If our schedules are consumed with what we like to do and there's nothing missional about it, why would anyone ask about a difference since that's what everybody does? If we handle stress the same way as the world, why in the world would anyone of the world be prompted to ask what makes you different? If you get angry and bitter and you're joyless, how is that going to cause anyone to see that you're a Christian? They won't be prompted to ask what makes you tick, but they will certainly know what gets you ticked. Now, the verse that I have on the screen actually begins this way. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord and then always be prepared to give an answer. You see, whether I think and talk and live in a different way, one that would cause someone to ask about it depends on what I believe about Jesus. If I really believe Jesus is Lord, then it's going to make a radical difference in my behavior. So do I believe he is Lord? Well, I sing that, but do I really believe it? And in the abstract, certainly the answer is yes. If I'm taking a theological exam and asked to name titles for Jesus, Lord may well be one that I'd list. But friends, God's exam is not on paper. It's in life. 
Is Jesus Lord in my circumstances? And is Jesus Lord of my circumstances? And in practice, the answer for many of us is yes, while I'm at church, but no, when I get in the car, no, this afternoon, no, not the rest of the week. You see, friends, belief determines behavior. In particular, what it is that we believe about God. Today, we continue the series that we started last week titled, What's God Got to Do With It? In which we're exploring the difference our beliefs about him should make in our everyday lives. We're going to continue that today. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Our Father, we thank you for bringing us here. We thank you for now preparing our hearts to receive your word. Help us, Lord, to have minds that are attentive. Help us to be open to the changes that you require in order for us to be conformed to the image of your dear son, Jesus. And Lord, may those changes that are necessitated, that are shown to us today through your word, may that be a joyful thing for us because it's an indication that you're in work in our lives. We thank you for that and what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many of you have heard me say a number of times over the years that in your New Testament, the words belief and faith, excuse me, are from the same Greek word, belief and faith, same Greek word. And I believe that the passage to which I've asked you to turn makes reference to how we that to the fact that how we believe affects what we do. Hebrews 12, verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now let's take a few minutes and step through what this verse is saying. And then we'll spend the rest of our time making application of it to our lives. It says... We are surrounded with such a great cloud of witnesses. The witnesses are those mentioned in the previous chapter. That previous chapter, Hebrews 11, many of you know, is known as faith's hall of fame because it uses the word faith over and over and it describes what people of faith in the past were able to do. For example, verse 7 of that previous chapter, Hebrews 11 and verse 7 says, by faith, Noah built an ark. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham made his home in the promised land. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. Verse 23, by faith, Moses' parents hid him and were not afraid of the king's edict. Verses 24 and 25, by faith, Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And then it goes on to mention Gideon and Barak and Samson and David and Samuel. These and others are listed in that chapter to serve as witnesses to us because we have their testimony of their lives given in Scripture to motivate us to live by faith as they did. Now, each of these that I've just quoted, each of those could be read instead of by faith because of what they believed. Because of what Noah believed. He built an ark because of what Abraham believed. He made his home in the promised land because of what Isaac believed. He blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future because of what Moses believed. He chose to forego the pleasures of sin and instead to be mistreated along with the people of God. And so we, like they, 
should act consistent with what we claim to believe, laying aside anything unnecessary to the Christian life, anything that distracts and detracts from what we're called to do. And that's why it says, throw off everything that hinders. The word that's translated everything that hinders is the Greek word onkos, from which we get oncology, the study of cancer. So like you excise a tumor from your body, you're to remove anything and anyone, even if not sinful, that keeps you from living the Christian life as you otherwise could and should. Everything that hinders refers to whatever weighs us down. But then it says, and the sin that so easily entangles. And this is why we know that everything that hinders is not necessarily something sinful. Because it says that and the sin that so easily entangles. So there's just stuff that entangles and there's also sin that wraps itself around our legs and keeps us from being able to run as we ought. So what is the sin that's referred to here? It appears it's a particular sin because instead of saying just throw off any sin that entangles, it says literally the sin that entangles. Now, I can't be dogmatic about this, but from the context, I think, along with people smarter than me, like the late theologian S. Lewis Johnson, I think it's referring to the specific sin of unbelief, of lack of faith. Now, whether it's only referring to that, I can't prove, but it's certainly true that failure to believe what God has said about himself underlies our sin struggles, and it is, in fact, believing God that's directly commended in faith's hall of fame. Now, we have an outline, then, for today's message, as we do each week, inserted in your program. If you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to take it out so that you can follow along with the four points that I'll be making in just a bit. Now, as indicated in the footnote at the bottom of your outline, I'm indebted to a book called You Can Change by Tim Chester Chester for much of what follows. Our ongoing temptation toward unbelief has a long and inglorious history. It goes all the way back to the first sin recorded in the opening chapters of the Bible. As a result of sin entering God's good world, the harmony that existed between us and our world and our God was broken. We originally viewed ourselves and our world and the Creator through untainted lenses. Our worldview, the way we see everything, was one in which, in the words of Tim Chester, we found true freedom, embracing God's reign over our lives and trusting His reign to be a wise and good one. This is the interpretation of life that brings joy and brings peace. But in the Garden of Eden, the serpent persuaded our first parents to doubt the goodness of God's rule. Satan offered a a different worldview, one that portrayed God as a tyrant whose rule should be rejected. And Adam and Eve took and ate the fruit because, now hear this, they believed the lie about God. Sin began with humanity disbelieving God's word. And having believed the lie, we are all susceptible to multiple lies now. We believe the wrong things. 
We desire the wrong things. Our sinful acts always have their origin in some form of unbelief. That's why I say at the top of the outline. Behind every sin and negative emotion is a lie. The root of all our behavior and emotions is the heart, what the heart trusts and what the heart treasures. People are given over to sinful desires because the Bible says they, that would include us, exchange the truth of God for a lie. The Bible says in Ephesians 4 about our former way of life before we came to Christ. You must no longer live as unbelievers do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Remember, friends, that we are born into this world, each of us with a sin nature, so we naturally think in sinful patterns. The passage that I just read that's on the screen says we naturally think in futile ways and our understanding is tainted by sin. This still afflicts us even after we've come to Christ because indwelling sin remains, including intellectual sin, thinking about ourselves and God and others falsely. We sin because we believe the lie that we're better off without God. That his rule is oppressive. That we'll be free without him. That sin offers more than God. This kind of thinking is true of every Sin and every negative emotion. I may worry about money because I believe the lie that material goods give meaning to my life or because I believe that God doesn't care about me. I may commit adultery or get depressed about my singleness because I believe the lie that intimacy with another person will give me more than God can give me. Every time we don't trust God's word, we're believing something else and that something else is always a lie. Just take something as seemingly mundane as getting angry while stuck in traffic. Believe it or not, it's because I don't trust God. I believe the lie that God isn't in control or that his purposes for me in this moment are not good. Many of our negative emotions are sinful because they're really symptoms of unbelief, the root sin of all others. When we're depressed, it may be due to a chemical imbalance that requires medication. But it may be because we believe that God isn't being good to us or that he's not in control. So the Bible says, everything that does not come from faith, that is belief, is sin. Now, we don't tend to think of ourselves as unbelievers because that's a synonym for non Christians. We call ourselves believers. The Bible uses believer and Christian synonymously. But all too often, our belief is in theory, not in practice. We believe on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, those truths we affirmed at church make little or no difference in our lives. We are functionally unbelievers. And the lies that we believe lead to slavery. Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But conversely, truth leads to freedom. Jesus also said just a few verses before that, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Freedom is found in the truth that we were made to worship God, to serve God, to trust God. 
Freedom is found in acknowledging that we're responsible for the mess that we've made of our lives, that our problems are rooted in our hearts, that we deserve God's judgment, and we desperately need God. Freedom is found in accepting that God is in control of our lives, that he's gracious, and that he forgives those who come to him in faith. If I'm enslaved by my worries, then freedom is found in trusting the sovereign care of my Heavenly Father. If I'm enslaved by the need to prove myself, then freedom is found in trusting that I'm fully justified in God's sight through the atoning work of Jesus. The Bible presents many aspects of God's character, and each one of them, if fully embraced, is an antidote, an answer to sin. So although many attributes of God could be listed and fleshed out, today I want to highlight four. Four truths that we must continually turn to. They're in your outline. The first is this. God is great. So we do not have to be in control. Now, God's greatness is seen in the very first line of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A God with the power to create the universe can literally do anything that's consistent with his character. If you believe in a God like that, how could you ever believe that your situation is hopeless? From the very first line of the Bible. Further, God not only created the world, he did so without breaking a sweat. The Bible tells us that he spoke it and it came to be. Let there be light and there was light. When God rested on the seventh day, it was not because he was worn out. It simply means he was done. He stopped creating. Failure to believe in God's greatness, his power and his sovereignty. It has real world effects on each of us in our day-to-day grind. Tim Chester gives several examples. He says, Alan is sitting on a train. Inexplicably, it's stopped just outside the station. He's getting angry because it looks as if he'll miss his hospital appointment. Beth is stressed. Replacing the family car has wiped out their savings. Now she's worried that they won't have enough money at the end of the month. When her husband comes home with an expensive-looking bunch of flowers to cheer her up, she bursts into tears. Colin's getting frustrated. He's trying to get a new community project going, but everything seems to be going wrong. As a result, he's getting irritable with his children. Dorothy is lying awake at night thinking about her friend Eileen. Eileen seems to be slipping into postnatal depression. Dorothy's looked after Eileen's baby a couple of times, but she has her own responsibilities. She wishes she could do more. She frets about it. So who's big enough? To handle all of these situations. In Mark chapters 4 and 5. We have a grouping of stories. In which Jesus demonstrates his complete control. Over everything. Over the natural world. The spirit world. Over sickness and even over death. Jesus calms the raging sea. With but a word. He heals the demon possessed man. By his command. He heals a sick woman. By simply speaking a word to her. And the summary of that entire section is found in Jesus' command. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Now these stories, friends, do not tell us that we'll never face sickness or death. Instead, they teach us we needn't fear the circumstances of life because God is in control. He works good for us in every circumstance. He will bring us safely home to glory. What's the worst that can happen? 
we die. And we're with the Lord. Death is not the last word. The last word belongs to Jesus. As when he says in Mark 5, when he raised a young girl from the dead, little girl, I say to you, arise. So what happens when you don't truly trust God's sovereign control? Well, you might take control yourself in harmful ways through manipulation or domination. You might wear yourself out with busyness or frustration. You might make your security and wealth a bigger priority than God's kingdom. Or you might worry. We become preoccupied with the bills and money becomes our main obsession. All because we don't believe our Father knows what we need and is able and willing to provide what is best for us. Jesus asked famously, Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Notice, O you of little what? Belief. Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. Why? Because that's not what Christians are supposed to do. Christians are supposed to be different. He goes on to say, For because the pagan world runs after all these things, and your father knows that you need him, seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. God is great, friends, so we don't have to be in control. Here's a second truth that we need to continually turn to. God is glorious, so we do not have to fear others. One common motivation for sin is that we crave the approval of people or we fear their rejection. We think we, quote, need the acceptance of others and so we're controlled by them. The Bible's term for this is something we briefly saw last week, the fear of man. Proverbs 29 says, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Last week, I mentioned Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God is Small, in which he says fear of man has a number of symptoms. Susceptibility to peer pressure. Quote, needing something from a spouse. I have to have this from my spouse. If I don't get it, nothing's then right. A concern with self-esteem, being overcommitted because we can't say no. Fear of being exposed. Small eyes to make ourselves look good. People making us jealous, angry, depressed, or anxious. Avoiding people. Comparing ourselves with others. Fear of evangelism. And on it goes. And our culture tries to overcome this problem. And all too often Christian culture tries to do so. By finding ways to bolster self-esteem. That actually makes the problem worse. Because notice, we become dependent on whatever or whoever will boost our self-esteem. In reality, low self-esteem is thwarted pride. We don't have the status we think we deserve. We elevate desires that are often good in themselves, a desire for love, affirmation, respect, but we elevate those to the level of needs without which we think we cannot be whole. We talk of needing the approval or acceptance of others, but our true need is to glorify God and love people. The answer, friends, to the fear of man, the reverence, the awe of people, is the fear of God. The answer to the fear of man is the fear of God. We need a big view of God. And to fear God is to respect, worship, trust, and submit to Him. It's the proper response to His glory, His holiness, His power, His love, His goodness, 
and his wrath. The Lord asks through the prophet Isaiah, to whom will you compare me? And of course, the answer is no one. He's incomparable. If we revere the Lord for who he is, then we need not revere people so that we're controlled by their expectations. The fear of the Lord is liberating. We take people's expectations seriously, yes, because we want to love them as God commanded, but we're not enslaved by those expectations. We don't serve them for what they can give us in return, their approval, affection, security, or whatever it is. By submitting to Christ's lordship, we're now free to serve others in love. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. He's glorious, so we don't have to fear others. Thirdly, God is good, so we do not have to look elsewhere. You see, friends, the invitation of the Bible is not to a dreary staying away from everything that's enjoyable. It's a call to find in God that which truly satisfies. It's believing that we find lasting fulfillment, satisfaction, joy, and identity in knowing God and in no place else. Whatever sin offers, God offers more because God offers us himself. You see, God isn't just good. He's better. Better than anything and everyone else. And he's the true source of all joy. One of our problems in this is that we think only of moments. In the moment, we think the pleasures of sin are real and the joy of God is distant, insubstantial. But in truth, it's the other way around. Every joy we experience is but a shadow of the source of all joy, which is God. Take marriage, for example. Marriage is a reflection of the joy of union with God. Adultery is a distorted reflection of that. If you idolize marriage or you commit adultery, then you've settled for less than the living water that only Jesus gives. You remember the story of Jesus talking with a woman at the well in John chapter 4? Jesus asked the woman to fetch her husband. Seems like a rabbit trail from the discussion that they were having, but in fact, Jesus is getting straight to her heart. The truth is, she had had five husbands and the man she was now with is not her husband. She's been looking for meaning, satisfaction, and fulfillment in marriage, sex, and intimacy. But they're like water that leaves you thirsty again. No doubt there was real pleasure, but it didn't last. It wasn't the real thing. It left her thirsty. There was a clear pattern in her life, and the math tells the story. Five husbands plus now another man. So what are the patterns in your life? Are the words, if only, a regular refrain in your life? And what comes after the if only? Friends, do you really believe that God is good? Well, if you can look at the cross of Jesus and doubt that God is good, then we need to have our desires, our spirits, made alive by the regenerating power of the Spirit. Paul clinches his argument that God is working all things together for us, for good, to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, by saying this later in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, 
Who can be against us? And how do I know God is for us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God is great, so we don't have to be in control. He's glorious, so we don't have to fear others. He's good, so I don't need to look to other persons or other things. And lastly, God is gracious, so we do not have to prove ourselves. As Tim Keller says, only in the Christian gospel do you get the verdict before the performance. In every other religion, you perform as best you can, you live as best you can, and then you hope to receive a good verdict from God when you stand at the pearly gates. But in the gospel, Jesus has perfectly performed for us, and those who are united to him have his righteousness, and the penalty of all of our sin, past, present, and future, has been paid in full. So now that means we can serve God not because of what we get, but because of what we've already been given. If you don't understand God's grace in the gospel, you'll wind up as so many professing Christians, living like the older brother in the prodigal son story that Jesus told. You remember that story? If so, you remember the younger brother after whom the parable is named. He's the prodigal. But the story is really about two sons. The older one is a cautionary tale for us. After the younger brother had squandered his inheritance and he comes back home, rather than the father punishing him or even disowning him, he throws a lavish party in his honor. The older brother is furious and he refuses to participate in the party. After all, this money being spent on the party is my inheritance. He's already got his inheritance. The stuff that's left is supposed to go to me, and now we're spending it on him again. The younger brother has betrayed our family, but instead of paying for his sin, he's being honored. The older brother scandalized by God's grace to his younger brother. All of the older brother's hard work seems to count for nothing. He sees life, he sees life like so many people do, that it's like a contract between us and God. We do good works, and in return, he blesses us. When things go well, that means God's upholding his end of the bargain. I've been doing what I'm supposed to do, and so when things go well, we're filled with pride. But when things go badly, either we blame others and feel guilty, or we blame God and we feel bitter. And this low-level seething often is ill-defined within us. We're not even sure why we're angry. But in actuality, the contract between us and God always reads this way. It's not if you do well, it'll go well. That was never the contract. The contract is this, paid in full by the blood of Jesus. That's the contract. And only when we grasp God's grace are we free to serve him for his own sake, not for reward in this life. And friends, without understanding and appreciating and appropriating grace, will not only work for reward, but the work itself will be drudgery. The older brother says to his father, all these years I have been, notice this, slaving for you. See, that's the way it feels when you have that mentality, a non-grace mentality. We'll not only have joyless service apart from grace, we'll engage in anxious performance trying to show that we've made something of ourselves. And so this older, angry, joyless brother says to his father, I never disobeyed your orders. 
There are people trying to perform day after day. Even people involved in in Christian service, trying to be perfect every week. Parents trying to produce perfect children. Workers putting in long hours at work, all in a desperate attempt to prove themselves. And some weeks they may feel as if they pulled it off. Other weeks it all seems fragile, as if it might shatter. And so they live in a constant state of stress and busyness, always striving to put in another great performance, always worried that the charade might crumble. We can't justify ourselves by the work we do, the performance we give. The good news is this, we don't have to. God is gracious and he throws his arms around us even when we fail. He throws his arms around us because he's the father in the story of the prodigal son. So, friends, do you believe God is gracious or do you believe he's a taskmaster that you slave to please? Nehemiah said, you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. 19th century theologian Charles Hodge says that true knowledge of Christ, quote, is not the apprehension of what he is simply by the intellect, but also involves the corresponding feeling of adoration, delight, desire, and contentment. Seeing and knowing Christ isn't just receiving information, but it means recognizing him as the one who is altogether lovely. It's embracing the truth about God and then delighting in that truth. So ask yourself, What do you believe about God? And then in turn, do I desire God more than I desire sin? If not, one problem, says Sinclair Ferguson, is that, quote, we think with our feelings. We think with our feelings. We don't always feel joy in God, but by faith, by what we believe, we can remind ourselves that he is our joy. When we find ourselves tempted to engage in sinful behavior or when we find that our emotions are getting the better of us, we need to speak truth to our hearts. We need to remind ourselves of what we believe and then speak it to ourselves. Say the truth to yourself repeatedly so that it sinks in. God is all I need. Say that regularly. Say it out loud. God is all I need. Say it back to the Lord. You are all I need. This God who is great and glorious and good and gracious. This God has told us about himself and his his words so that we know what it is we're to believe. What it is that's true about him. He's instructed us to help us. And so in your take home truth. God has given us his word for the purpose of changing us. That means knowing what it says about him, believing what it says about him, and then acting on what it says about him. Let's bow before the Lord. Our Father, we thank you again for gathering us and for meeting with us. We thank you for teaching us. Lord, we thank you that what we are taught about you and your word is incredible. 
It's so incredible, it's so really mind-blowing that apart from the work of your Spirit, we wouldn't believe. Lord, all of it, every word of what you say is true. Truth itself is only defined by you and what you say. So you've given us that truth so that we know what to believe. Lord, help us as believers then to remember all I need, all we need is you. And then think about all that you are. And then make application of that to the circumstances to which you have called us. Not the circumstances that just happened to us. The circumstances, every one of them, to which you have called us. May we do that this week. And as a result, may we represent you accurately. As the God who deserves the joy and the praise of our lips and our lives. May it be seen by others so that they are motivated to ask us of the hope that we have within us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.